Hello, and welcome back to Real-Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm one of your hosts, Caitlin Redwing, joined once again by my co-host, Sam Mosier. Sam, hello. Um, <laughs> this is our, like, I want to say first weekly episode. This will be right after our last episode, which is really exciting. We've got a good show, show good podcast for you today. Um, this week, we are joined by Tomas Bardet. He's the lead game designer at Parallel Studio, which just released Under the Waves last month. So Thomas, he will be talking about the game with us more in depth. But before then, a quick disclaimer for those for our listeners. We work with Quantic Dream, whose third-party publishing arm Spotlight by Quantic Dream published Under the Waves. Shouldn't be affect how this episode goes at all, but we wanted to be fair and honest uh, for all of our listeners. So... This is our first time speaking with Tomas. Thank you so much, Tomas, for joining us, and congrats on the launch. Hi, thank you, and thanks for the invitation. Yes, of course. Uh, we're looking forward to speaking with you. I know Sam and I had a, a lot of fun playing Under the Waves, um, so we've got lots of questions for you that we're personally excited to ask. But before we dive into Under the Waves, we like to ask our guests a quick warm-up question. And so the first one is... It's a very easy one, but what is your favorite game of all time? Or maybe that's a very difficult question. <laughs> yeah, it's not that easy. <laughs> um, can I give a two-part answer? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think the first one is a, is a really recent one, um, Outer Wilds, for me. Um, mm -hmm. Because when I finished it, I felt like you know, I was a different person. Uh, it it's such a, it's a, something that shook me, you know, on a, on a very personal level. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an optimistic approach to uh, to the end of the world and uh, and a reminder of how little we are in the universe. It's it's brilliant. Um, and my second answer, uh, it's a retro adventure game, a French adventure game, actually from the '90s. It's called um, Little Big Adventure. I think I think in America it's a Twin Sons Adventure. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. Um, I have not heard of it. And for Twin Sons Little Big Adventure. No, Twin Sons Adventure, yes. It's it's a great game. Um, and for me, it was because as a child, it was the first time I discovered the freedom in a video game. You know, I, I had played some Mario, I had played some um, some Pokemon and stuff like that. But it was the first time that I, I realized I could, you know, take my time in a video game and just be in a place and the world would um, revolve, uh, would play around me, but I'm not. I'm a character in the world that's bigger than me. It, it's a great game. I'm going to have to add that to my list. And Tomas, what was the first game you named? The one that said, you know, change the way you've looked at the world? Outer Worlds. Oh, Outer Worlds. Oh, yes. Yes, sorry. No, <laughs> no, you're French. fine. I was, no, you're totally okay. Oh, I loved, wait, Outer Worlds or Outer Wilds? <laughs> wilds. Wilds is the, the time, the time manipulating one, right? Exactly, yes. 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 I, I think that might be the Hall of Fame of guests' favorite game of all time um, really? <laughs> that Caitlin and I both have still not played. So you wait, had another tally one? to the mark of uh, reasons why you and I should play it. Because wait, because you've tried it before, right, Caitlin? Wait, Outer are Wilds? we talking about? I know I played that. Okay, I played it last year. Maybe nice. okay. I, it might have actually been. We might have talked about it on the podcast, and I hadn't played it. But I did play it, and I loved it, and I could cry thinking about it. I listened to the that is one of my favorite um, scores of all time. Yeah, the it's, soundtrack is oh, amazing. The, yeah, the composer and oh, what is his name? Andrew. Um, Andrew Palov, I think. Yes. Palov, yeah. Uh, just like eerie and like vast, but also beautiful and. The way they weave like music into that game, especially at the end, like the campfire. I don't want to spoil it, anything, but like everybody should go play that game and don't look up anything about it because it is best to go in blind. And I can't tell you why not to look into it, but don't look into it. But yeah, that is. I feel like we we should start keeping track of what people answer their favorite game is on this podcast because I do want to track how many people uh, probably agree with you, Thomas. We've gotten a lot of a lot of uh, Outer Wilds, and okay, I, I stand corrected. Kaylin has played it. Now I'm the the sore <laughs> loser out here who needs to play it. <laughs> uh, your second answer, Tomas. Uh, I I want to say Little Big 
Little Big Adventure, right? I'm getting it confused with PlayStation's yes. Little Big Planet. That's um, what was that, you know, you mentioned feeling like part of a world, something bigger than yourself. Would you credit that as one of the first games that made you interested in game design as a career? Oh, yes, I think. Um, and also because because it was um, a very retro game. It's a game I couldn't play for um, a long time because um, mm. it didn't work you know, on, um, on most recent computers. Mm. And so it was also um, one of the first games I had to, um, to install um, some, um, some patch and stuff like that uh, to make it work. So it was really, um, even uh, outside the game, you had to, to work to play the game. <laughs> um, so yes, it was, uh, it was something yeah, that, uh, that inspired me. Did you see that they are remastering the game? I've seen that. I haven't had a chance to, to, to play the demo or anything. So I'm, oh, I, I'm I waiting. Don't see, <laughs> yeah, I don't see a demo right now. They might have had it during like the Steam Next Fest. Yes, I think they had one uh, like two months ago or something. Yeah, they have a... It's in pre... Or it's in alpha. They had a pre-alpha playtest earlier in the year. But adding to my watch list like the never ending <laughs> wish list that I have. Um, I'll, I'll keep an eye on this one. I, this is the first time I had heard of this game, but yeah, it looks really interesting. Step into Twinson's shoes, a hero on a quest to thwart evil in a fantastical world. Look, I'm already sold. I don't need to read anything more. <laughs> well, awesome. Let's go ahead and I guess dive into under the waves. Um, that is no our main intended. topic. Yeah, no pun intended. Uh, we will try to avoid <laughs> major spoilers in this discussion for anybody who may want to play play it but hasn't had the chance yet. Um, for those who are unaware, Under the Waves um, begins. I'll start with a quote because as soon as I started playing this, I wrote it down. I loved it, and it feels very fitting for what the game is, obviously. But Under the Waves begins with the quote often attributed to Aristotle that there are three sorts of people, those who are alive, those who are dead, and those who are at sea. Uh, Under the Waves is a narrative adventure game about the engulfing power of grief. It's set in the depths of the North Sea in a techno-futuristic 1970s, where professional diver Stan, the character you play as, is struggling to overcome a life-changing loss while working for the largest offshore drilling company in the world. The Isolation of the deep sea is fitting and reflective of Stan's current state of mind, and we witness as he regresses further into this self-imposed solitude and begins experiencing strange events under the sea, while also witnessing how much this world needs protection and how his actions and the company he works for are all connected to the environment. For those who are watching, you can get a you saw a brief uh, clip of what the game looks like. It's very beautiful. The art style is just like. It's breathtaking. I really enjoyed being immersed in this world. Um, but yeah, first, before we kind of dive into questions specifically about the game, Tomas, part of our, our podcast purpose is to pull the curtain back on what roles in this industry do and what they entail. So in your own words, can you describe what a lead game designer is and what do you work on when developing a game? Um Yes, I think I should start by defining what's a game designer and what what, mm -hmm. what he does. Um, the role of a game designer is to translate um, narrative ideas or visual ideas into into gameplay. So it must it's defining what the player is gonna experience and uh, how he will experience it. So um, that's what we call design. And the lead game designer is basically uh, someone that will uh, ensure that all the game designer in the team work on the, on the same game and I work in the same direction um, to, to make sure that we have a, a coherent experience. And Tomas, what is your working relationship like with the game director? I know you joined the project very early on and, and I know Ronan, the game director, what, how, you know, how did you, what was your two's relationship like? What did it look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, we talk all the time, like there's a constant back and forth. Uh, we exchange ideas and we exchange uh, some. Um, uh, when we have something ready, we we show we show it to um, to each other, and uh, it's a lot of iteration. So that's really how you work. And um, 
the, um, the game director maybe would have an idea. So we'd have to see um, how can it, what, what form can it take in, um, from a game design perspective. Then with the game design team, we work to, um, to, to sculpt it, to, to, to put it in the game. Then we show it to the, um, the art team, the uh, game director, and they have an, another opinion. So we work, uh, we work like that. Um, depending on the studio in which you work for, um, a game designer job can be a bit different because we are an indie studio and we are um, a little team of like 15 people or so. We also do a lot of prototyping and a lot of scripting, scripting and programming. Uh, so we can really instigate um, our design into the game. And so that's what we do with, uh, with, that's what we did with Under the Waves. And I'm curious, you know, with a game like a platformer, for example, like a Mario, I, I know the approach to game design is much different than something that is so story focused as Under the Waves is. Do you, do you welcome that challenge of having to meld the gameplay of something with something that is so thematically, again, sorry, no pun intended, deep as Under the Waves is? Um, yes, I think it's always very interesting for, for something like Mario. Um, you have a lot of, um, of stuff that are already there. You know, you know that you have a character, he will move uh, and he can jump and you have to reach uh, point, a to, uh, point A to point B. And there's a lot of obstacles along the way and you have to play with that. And maybe you can surprise the player and everything. And for something like Under the Waves, you have a setting, a very strong setting, the, uh, the ocean. And um, we are lucky because there's not a lot of game that take, uh, takes place in the ocean. So we have a lot of things to, um, to discover also ourselves. And we can surprise the player more easily maybe. And because we have this strong setting, we have to build our mechanics and um, our experience around this setting. And so, um, for example, in Under the Waves, you have to manage your oxygen, you have to manage, um, you, you have to manage your fuel and everything. And that's something that comes from the ocean. Uh, there's lots of stuff like that. Um, also, getting the environmental uh, message we want to, um, to bring in the game. And so we build the mechanics around those messages. So it's really the opposite approach. You go from uh, what you want to tell and you make it a game. Or you, whereas in Mario, you have a game and you just build it on the other side. I'm not sure if it's clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm glad you talked about like, just there, there isn't too many games that are set in the ocean. Um, so it's kind of a breath of fresh air, which there's not breathing underwater except your <laughs> oxygen tank. But um, how, what were like the challenges like for kind of, developing gameplay around a world where like everything works different than when you're above ground the physics work different you've got water mechanics and all these other elements that you're not used to with games and in life above water um i think the other the other thing to um to do right is movement um you have to find the right balance between fun and between realistic um, it's also harder for the player because it's a um, 360 um, environment. Mm. So it's a whole new dimension to, to apprehend. Um, you have to translate the weight of the ocean um, without being frustrating. So when you're swimming, you have to feel that you're struggling against something, but you won't struggle all the time because you'll, you'll be swimming for like um, 10 hours or so. So it's a lot of, um, yes, of balancing those elements. We play with um, animations, for example, to give the sensation of, um, of struggling without being slower or anything. Um, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of trickery, you know, <laughs> you, you have to give the impression of something. Um, and we also have a, a huge constraint in, in the wave is that we, are, we want to um, give the liberty to the player to um, explore a, a large um, environment. But he also needs to be precise in his movements because he needs to reach some um, some interactions, some you um, can grab some um, some objects, for example, and so we need to have movements that is fast and that is um, flowing, you know, um, easily. But we also need to have a movement that is really precise. And um, in other ways, what we did is that we have this feature: we can um, go inside Moon. It's a personal submarine, and you can go and exit Moon as much as you want. And so you can, um, if you need to, to move um, to move far for long distance traveling, there's moon, and it's a, a vehicle, and it's a whole new approach of um, of moving underwater. And if you want to swim, it, it's a new experience. You'll, you'll swim in narrow places, and you'll be more precise. Yeah, I I was really impressed with how all, 
I guess we'll say like three different movements felt like when you're moving around in moon, which was just like, you could be very fast and very precise in your movement. And then you had kind of swimming, which still was very freeing. And I really enjoyed the freeing movement and how fast you could get Stan to move. And then the third, which is like when Stan is walking on a platform and you can, I I could feel the weight of the water when you are really like, walking around he's like sluggish and it's tough and you're like oh i just want to like swim again um was that was that choice was that from like play testing or did you kind of know what the balance was going to be between like stand walking and swimming did it have anything to do with kind of the narrative of like stan's mental state and like when he's walking it's compared to swimming um, it's a bit of both. So we, we did a lot of playtesting at first to find the, the right speed and the right um, the right sensations. But we also wanted um, the walk to be slow and to be, uh, as you said, um, you, you sense the struggling of the water and everything. And we wanted the, the swimming to be liberating and to be like um, um, suddenly you're free, you know. <laughs> and yeah. it's tied to narrative because there are some some moments in the story. Uh, where I, when you are in um, in um, untrapped area and everything, it's easier to walk. But when you walk, you're slower and you're struggling more. And so it means something with what we want to say at this moment. And when you exit these places and you're in the world again, and you can swim, it's also um, it's also it it goes with the message of the game and uh, what we want to say. That balance you described designing a game with underwater movement is you know the balance between fun and realistic is really hard i like for as long as i've been aware of of games criticism and and things that scare people about games it's always like the underwater level like you know i I remember like playing uh atlantis and kingdom hearts like you know people would be like oh get through that as quick as possible (laughs) because it's not as fun as the rest of the game um but i find that really interesting the play testing of getting that balance right so that you know you can be one of the few and and good <laughs> underwater games uh, all set there um playtesting is a part of game development that always fascinates me do you have any like anecdotes or examples of you know feedback that you got from uh playtesting that really helped shape the game along its way mm, oh that's a good question uh, i'm not sure i have any that come to mind right now um, we had we had some players who didn't use the um, the camera control at all, so um, mm. we we had to think of something for them uh, because some people, you know, uh, maybe you do actually uh, don't use the camera when they use the controller, and so um, because we wanted to have an, an experience um, easy to play and um, easy to um, to move around and everything, we added a feature so the camera would always orient to the to the movement direction and everything. And so those comes from playtesting. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that come from playtesting. I'm not sure uh, what, what really... Oh, that's um, a great sure answer. Some See, fun that, anecdotes. Yeah, that's fun enough for me. I mean, that's what I, I love about playtesting is, is those gameplay behavioral things that, you know, us as individuals don't think of because, you know... I, I play game, you know, I, I use camera controls, but totally fine that people don't. But then you have to think of a solution um, for people who are going to use the right analog stick. I Yeah. So thank you. That's that's really cool. I that reminds me of I feel like it was a TikTok or it was some meme and it was like people recording their parents playing games. And it was like it might have been like The Last of Us or someone was like the character was running up a stairwell and the camera is just fixated <laughs> on the wall because they're not using the like stick and i was like oh my goodness but then i was like that's how my dad plays like he watches me play games and he's like how do you move the camera at the same time and i'm like it's just that's just ingrained in my brain at this point because i've been basically training practicing since i was a very small child with games and i've grown up with their evolution and are very familiar with how camera the right analog stick works but yeah there there are many people who don't play games and or just that is a that's an added layer of something they need to do and they don't want to or just it's <laughs> hard for them to grasp so 
I I didn't realize while playing, but now that you've mentioned it, I'm like, oh yeah, the no, the camera did move with me. And yeah, yeah. exactly. There's a lot of stuff that we know by default, but you forget how you know them. And so yeah. um, as a designer, you have to teach them again, but not to, too obviously, because if you already know them and you see that we are teaching you that, you feel that you feel frustrated. Mm-hmm. But we also have to teach them for new players that don't know that. And so it's um, it's also a balance to find um, in uh, in teaching mechanics. Yeah. Was there anything else while developing, designing the game and through playtesting that you felt like you guys had to, it was a tricky balance of figuring out? Um, oh, yes, there was. Lighting, underwater, it, it's a whole <laughs> subject. Um <laughs> And it's um, it's a really important one also because for a game, lighting is like ninety percent of the of the look and feel of the game. And it's um, especially when there's not a lot of stuff in the game at the beginning of the production, you really have to wonder um, what the player will be able to see, how far he will be able to see. Um, for example, um, earlier in the production, um, the game was much darker, uh, more realistic in a way um, when you are really at the depths of the ocean. You only uh, lit the atmosphere by the, with your light, and um, we went for something more uh, more clear because it gives um, a very oppressive vibe, and, um, and it was also harder to uh, to move around and to um, and to experience the world. So it's really a small setting that can change the whole experience uh, just by moving one value. Yeah, and there's we hear this like. A lot, and even with some of our pitching of like, some people just are like kind of, they're scared of the ocean, and I can't remember what the term is, but like that fear of the unknown, of like the darkness. Look, I live next to an ocean, and I feel the same way where I'm like, I don't want to <laughs> swim in something that I can't see the bottom of. Um, and I, it's also something that I didn't think about while playing, but yeah, the lighting is, it's light enough that you can, you can see pretty much everything or you can use the sonar which uh if you're watching we just showed that on screen as well when you're in moon or swimming about you can put out this like sonar emitting wave and the topography of the ocean floor lights up so you can see everything um not sure if that's like you said just like for the vibe of the game but also in a way it's accessibility for those who Kind of have this fear of the ocean the game does a really good job of balancing that and letting you see everything so you're like okay it's okay nothing here is coming to get me <laughs> um, and even when there are sharks they're they're nice they just like mind their own business they do their own thing yes exactly we it was really important for us that the ocean wasn't threatening to the player and as you said some people um um, have a phobia around the ocean, but even if you don't have a phobia, the ocean is still um, it's still um, that's something you know it's huge and it uh, can be impressive. And so it was important for us that uh, the ocean is not threatening. And so with lightning, if you make it a bit clearer, suddenly it's not the ocean anymore. It's uh, you know it's it's a huge uh, a huge bathtub, <laughs> and <laughs> we we didn't want that, but we also want to not have the um, the oppressive element of the ocean. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of back and forth, and playtesting also um, helps with that. Speaking of playtesting and, and lighting and challenges that come from setting a game in the deep ocean, how did your team navigate level design and world design so that... Because my fear with like a you know a, a, a ocean floor setting is I'm gonna get lost, and I was very impressed. I know you know with waypoints help with that, but I didn't find myself getting turned around or thinking one section of the ocean floor is the same as the other. Was that di- as difficult as I think it would be for designing, or, or you know tell me about that? Um, I think we try to um, to not ask ourselves too much question on that. You know we. Um, we went from a, a blank page, redraw um, some biomes and some uh, some um, key elements in those um, in the areas. We knew what we wanted to um, to um, to see and to, to show to the player. We had some strong concept arts also that helped us um, give us some uh, visual elements. And then after that, we built it and we playtested it. And a lot of playtests, we move some things that don't work. 
and um, yeah, it's, it's mostly iterating on something that we had um, and some um, and with some strong concept art and strong shapes. It really helps the player and not feeling lost and um, feeling that everything is different and everything. Also, shout out to the the octopi. <laughs> that Sam did you yeah you came across that in the game there's there's areas where if you see an octopus it will like lead you to like hidden caves or like a neat area and I just like found myself always looking for them (laughs) and I was like oh how do I get to like this like part on my map or like this little like box and I'm like oh there's an octopus nearby it will probably bring me to it so that was just like one of the things that really help with navigating where to go that it's not obvious when you're playing where it's like, hey, come follow this thing. It's just like, if you see it, you can choose. The player has the option to choose to follow that thing, to explore more. And and even lighting was also a neat way of like showing where to go, especially when you're like in the caves. And sometimes I was like, oh, where do I go? And then you like see light emitting from a spot in, I want to say the ceiling, but like above you. And it's like, oh, it's probably that way. Um, yeah, now I'm just like watching the gameplay on the screen. <laughs> um. <laughs> Thank you for pointing out the octopus detail, Caitlin. It reminded me of how the animals would lead you to points of interest in Ghost of Tsushima. Um, and oh, yeah. you just highlighting how they function and bringing you to cool secrets or, you know, places to find. Uh the, this old adage, like my dad taught me, like growing up playing platformers, like, oh, there's always something behind the waterfall. Like, there, usually there's some sort of collectible there. But in a game underwater, there are no waterfalls. So you have to find a, a new kind of trick to lead people to secrets and stuff. Yes, exactly. And I think what's work here is that it's a secret. We don't tell the player to follow the octopus uh, directly. Um, it's not, there's no objective behind it. It's just something the player can do and he will find something. And so that's what makes it great for the player. Also, it's something he found on his own. So we talked a little bit about how, like, there's not very many games set in the sea, but there are a handful out there. Were there any that inspired development or maybe games that inspired development that did not take place under the sea? Um, yes, we had one major inspiration. Um, it's Firewatch. So it doesn't take place under the sea. But for us, it was... Um, it was something that um, a strong representation of what we wanted to mm. say and to tell in the game and how we wanted to say it um, from the story and the feeling of loneliness and um, the relationship with, um, with you know, the, a mentor figure. For games that takes place under the sea, uh, we played some of them, um, a lot of them actually. <laughs> um, um, we played, for example, Beyond Blue. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. But for us, it was a reference for the movement and for um, how, um, how you can be precise and, um, and fun under the, under the sea. And there are also some games that for us were a reference for what we didn't want it to do. Um, for example, we knew we wanted some uh, light crafting uh, in the, under the waves, but we didn't want to go um, as far uh, as a Subnautica, for example. It's a great game, but that's not what we wanted to to, um, to say in our in our game. And so we look at those game and we say, okay, how can we can differentiate uh, ourselves? Because it's an underwater game, so people will compare it to other underwater games. And so we have to uh, to show that we are different. Yeah, uh, the crafting it, it's nice because depending on people's play styles, you you really don't have to craft much um, in the game because there's like for people who haven't played, you can craft like your oxygen sticks, um, flares, stuff like that, that will help aid you while you're playing. But I know like for like the main missions, pretty much everything that you need, you guys have within reach of the player before you get into those scenarios. So for those who want a very like relaxing play style, you, and you don't want to like have to worry about resource management and like gathering materials, you don't have to, but from just like playing and wanting to clean up the environment, you you get a lot of those materials. So I really enjoyed the the crafting mechanics and it, it gave a lot of variability to play styles. While we're talking about the inspirations, um, 
given that it is such a story focused title, were there any other, you know, outside of just games, movies, shows, books that influenced the the look or the storytelling or even the gameplay of Under the Waves? Like I got vibes of, of, of course, this is an obvious comparison, like James Cameron's The Abyss. But even from just like the isolation point of view, it reminded me of AI or Moon, which was that like Sam Rockwell movie from a couple decades ago. Were there any like ones that come to mind? Well, I think actually the first time um, Ronan, uh, our game director, pitched the project to me, it was like Alice meets Firewatch. Ah, um, oh, cool. So yes, those are the main uh, main inspirations. Um, you said Moon is also a great inspiration, and that's uh, where the submarine come, names come from in our game. Oh, oh um, cool. Yes, um, a lot of um, old documentaries from uh, Jacques Cousteau, um, French, French explorer. Um, not sure if, if you know about him or anything, but we grew as a team. We grew we, with, um, with uh, his documentaries and his movies. Um, and this, uh, this kind of aesthetics of underwater documentaries um, from the 70s or, or 60s, we tried to replicate it in the game um, by working on the, um, on, the, um, on the grain of the image um, and on the, um, on the dirt of the, on the camera and everything. To, to give you know a nostalgic um, a nostalgic vibe and um, a melancholic vibe um, on um, on the whole uh, image. Oh, I like that. Is did Stan's red the beanie cap yes. come from Jacques Cousteau? I looked up pictures of him and I'm like, oh wait, this looks familiar. But I think I'm just thinking of Stan um, <laughs> because I I don't believe I've seen these these French uh, sea documentaries, but. I will definitely look into this in the future. Jacques Cousteau, the name does sound familiar, so maybe I have. Yeah, um, a little bit of video. I was going to say just a little bit of film history. He was the uh, only documentarian to win, um, I believe, the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for like 50 years until Fahrenheit uh, 9-11 did in you know the next century um so i knew of him from from some of the awards although i've not seen his movies and uh as much as i love nature documentaries i'll have to seek it out especially when i i find them even more interesting when the technology was more inhibited like than it is now to make a you know a piece of nonfiction filmmaking like that and what's interesting about him is that he's not only um, a, um, a filmmaker he's really an explorer and um and um and a seaman, you know, um, he mm-hmm. invented a lot of technology um, f- for exploring the sea. And um, for example, in the game, we have this, um, this huge live module in which you live uh, for, for many days. And he's the one to, um, he's the first one to have prototype this kind of, uh, of machines and everything. Interesting. I, I want to ask a question, but I realize I don't know what the abyss is. So I'm, is the Abyss is a game set underwater? It's a movie. It's a, a like an underminer a drillers. Uh, it's probably James Cameron's least known movie that isn't Piranha Two: The Spawning. Um, <laughs> it also has uh, um, I could go to hold, but it has an infamously bad uh, like behind the scenes stories. Uh, the the crew was so mad about like the conditions and and the fact that they shot so much of it underwater and. All the actors were freezing because they were shooting in cold conditions that the crew all made shirts that said life's abyss and then you die. Um, <laughs> but anyway, if, if anybody is not familiar with that movie, I'd recommend checking out and especially diving into the, the making of it. We're like getting a surprising amount of film history on this podcast that I wasn't <laughs> expecting. I love it. <laughs> um, but I really enjoy it. So it kind of answers my question that I'm assuming the, the answer is yes, that... You guys knew this game would be set underwater very early on because I think like you could tell stories about grief and loss and isolation in many different settings. Um, was there any time of was there a moment where you guys were kind of ideating or thinking about setting it in space or somewhere else, or was it kind of always going to be the ocean? Um, yeah, it's interesting because space in many ways is a lot like underwater setting. Um, yeah. But no, um, for us, it was always an underwater game um, for, for the little um, history. Um, our game director, Ronan, first uh, prototyped this uh, like 15 years ago when he was um, still, uh, still studying um, how to make games. 
And um, it was really tied to um, the um, Erika catastrophe. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's basically um, a petrol boat that um, that sunk near near the coast of Britain in France. And his game was just um, a diver that cleans the ocean and cleans the petrol um, at the bottom of the sea. Uh, many years later, um, for our studio, when um, when we had to find some new ideas and some stuff to do um, going forward, um, we pitched uh, some um, some games and some ideas. And this idea of a diver that cleaned petrol uh, at the bottom of the sea came back. And um, with the years and uh, the experience of um, of um, each team um, team member, we added uh, this. Um, this uh, this layer of um, of um, grief and of um, loneliness and of um, depression, and that's something that came from um, from um, from the team and from uh, some personal experience. But first of all, it's a uh, it's a game uh, about uh, the ocean and uh, you know ecology, and we tie this with a personal story, um, and we want we wanted to, to have um, the two of them respond to each other. Um, yeah, I I think it it, it works really well. Um, I yeah, you you answered what my next question was going to be is that it's very clear that at the core of this game is like Stan and his journey from moving on from this like very intense loss that he has felt, but there's also this really strong core message of like ocean conservation and environmentalism, and you guys worked really closely with a real foundation called Surfrider Foundation Europe to ensure all your messaging and the facts in the game are scientifically accurate. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where that decision came from, why you guys decided to to work with them, um, and how how did that affect the development? Um, yes, for us, it wasn't something um, new. We had already done something like that uh, on our previous game, Echo. We worked with a non-profit organization called We Forest, um, and uh, they planted a tree for each uh, each game sold and stuff like that. And uh, we really enjoyed the experience and uh, what it brought to the table. And so, for Under the Waves, from the start, we knew we wanted to work with another um, organization. We went uh, towards Surfrider, and uh, we met um, Remy Touja, uh, who is in charge of the um, of the digital presence of uh, Surfrider um, in Europe. And he's a video game fan. Um, the uh, the connection uh, was uh, was really great, and um, they really wanted um, like us to not make an educative pamphlet on uh, Surfrider, um, but a game that integrated Surfrider uh, smoothly in the universe and that could talk about uh, you know the ocean and the uh, pollution um, without being uh, you know too too heavy ended. Um, for us, it's a great opportunity also to work with people that know what they are talking about uh, when we talk about um, ocean um, preservation and uh, pollution. Um, we have uh, we all have preconceived ideas of what um, what pollution in the ocean um, means and what it represents. But with experts' opinion, we can have you know some data, some facts, and um, it brings something more to the table. Yeah, I while playing as Stan, when you're like exploring this, the ocean and you're learning more about it and you're seeing the effects of pollution and what like oil drilling does, it almost feels like Stan is learning alongside the player and he's learning to appreciate and love the ocean um, as the player is doing so at the same time. Was that purposeful or like, did you make that choice of like where Stan landed with his feelings of the ocean and like no yeah for, yes it's purposeful we really wanted the um, the ocean to feel uh, you know strange at first and um, as you play you learn to um, you, you make it a friend and Stan has the same development uh, Stan goes in, the, goes in the ocean for personal reasons but not because he wants to be there um, or wants to be there specifically for for the ocean. And uh, with time, he learns to appreciate it and to appreciate its beauty, its beauty. And with time, stuff happens to the ocean and pollution um, appears and everything. And so um, there's also the feeling of um, you have to appreciate it um, as much as you can and uh, and protect it uh, when you can. Um, yeah, I 
you mentioned Stan like makes a friend too. And I'm now thinking of Joe the seal. And so shout out to anybody who's played it. Shout out to <laughs> Joe the seal. Um, he is a very friendly like seal that the player and Stan befriend along the way. Um, and makes me wish I had my own, like not a pet seal, but I, <laughs> I want my own Joe the seal. Tomas, we've, we've talked different shades of this question about the the difficulty and the amount of challenge or fears or you know dangers present in the game you talked about you know making the ocean friendly just now uh earlier with the lighting like trying to again i I wish i had the word on the top of my head for the the fear of you know the unknown and in the deep uh ocean you also talked about crafting uh and how you wanted to keep it light and, and not put it into a like a like make it a survival game more or less obviously i feel like that's all in service of making a game that you want people to see through you want to you know you're trying to tell a story you want people to see the end of it whereas a survival game is kind of meant just to to keep going and uh you know always present a new challenge was there were there versions of the game that were more difficult or had or pushed back on the players harder what's it like finding that balance um yes um at first it was really more um, well you could die really more easily um a lot of more of management of um, your oxygen and uh, your fuel and everything and if you had no fuel you couldn't move and everything it was really um, um a way to punish the player and even before playtesting we realized that that wasn't what the um that wasn't the mood of the game. Uh, we wanted something moody and something um, um, relaxing and something that you can, uh, an, an environment you can wander around without being stressed by anything. And so, yes, we um, we removed it from the game and we um, we kept some light mechanic like that to um, for the realism and, um, and to give a little sense of progression. Um, but as you said, the main objective for us was for the player to uh, to see it through, and to um, to see what we have to say, and to see uh, what Stan will uh, will discover uh, along the way. Yeah, I I kept expecting like a shark or the whales or like running out of oxygen. I just kept expecting to die because you go into this game being like, oh. There's a ton, like the ocean is horrifying, and it's called the thalassophobia is what we Thank were thinking you. of with the fear of like the deep ocean, the unknown and all that. Um, but I, I wrote this in our, in our notes and I like it, but like that lack of environmental danger, like really emphasizes the real horrors, which is corporate greed and loss and grief. And so having that, that lack of danger really just, it almost emphasized everything else about the story. It reminded me of uh, on that note, um, it's something I hadn't thought when playing, but Gone Home, which is another one of my favorite narrative <sighs> indie games. And for those unfamiliar college student, you go home probably on like some sort of break and uh, you walk in and, and nobody's home. It's a stormy night. And I mean, now famously, like it's a game about, you know, finding notes and pieces around the house, piecing together where where your family's at. But upon first playthrough, and especially if you're going in, I guess like light spoilers blind, uh, you kind of think it might be a horror game. It's storming outside. Where is your family? The house is a little old and creepy. Um, so there's always just that little through line of tension throughout the whole thing that never really pays off. Um, although the story itself does have some tension to it. It reminded me in the same way one of the ways where like, you know, the gameplay never pushed back too hard, even though still underneath the story is a sense of tension and dread that just comes from the themes that Caitlin highlighted. Yeah, I, I want to say something like not that it doesn't pay off what i think gone home does really well and what under the waves does is it gives you this intense sense of relief like there's Mm -hmm. a moment in gone home where i really like i thought it was going in a direction that like i don't want to say like horror but like what i thought i was going to come across would be horrific and i no spoilers but like, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. I, everybody who's played it, you you just, you know this moment. And when it doesn't happen, like I sobbed. I was like, I just couldn't believe that like it didn't go where I thought it was going. Because like you said, it's storming. You're just expecting it to be this like 
terrible story. And Under the Waves has threads of that where it's just like I grief and losses. Everybody, most everybody can relate to that in some way. And you're just like, you're always feeling it while playing. And there's this point at the end, again, no spoilers, where like players are given this choice. And it is very refreshing and freeing as a player to be able to choose. Um, uh, Tomas, I don't know if you can really talk about it without like going into spoilers, but what was the thought process behind giving players a choice in where the story goes at the very end? Hmm. For us, it was a way... um... We're not a game with a lot of choice. We don't give the player in choice in um, how the story will go. It's a linear story. And um, the player um, f- follow uh, the story Stan lives. And at the end, it's the first time we give the player a real, a real choice about basically how it will end. And for us, it's a way for um, to give the player the freedom to um, to choose what the story means. Um I'm, I'm trying not to spoil anything, um, but it's, I know it's hard. <laughs> it's how we will interpret what he lived uh, for the uh, hours he played the game. Um, how, how the player will um, will understand that, and maybe maybe it's a pessimistic approach. Maybe it's optimistic. Maybe it's uh, it's something deeper. It's for the player to 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 see. Yeah, it it really changes like. Oh, not the entire meaning, but how, whatever your choice was at the end, you probably took something very different from that game than those who chose the other option. Like to me, at the end, there was like one very clear option for me. Um, I think based on the trophy percentages, I think that's what a lot of people chose. <laughs> I do want to go back and play with the other ending in mind and just to see how that changes my pers- perception of the game. Um but yeah, that, that was one of those moments where I, I was not expecting to be given a choice. And I sat there for a minute and I was like also emotional because these kind of games just really get to me. Um, but I I have a, I really appreciated the being able to choose. Even to even if my option was obvious, I liked being able to sit there and think about it and reaffirm in my my belief of that choice, and that I think that's funny that um, you, you find your 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 option obvious. At some point in the development, uh, we did a playtest, and we found that majority of players uh, choose the other option, and we had to ask why, and it was something not clear for us or for the player, or maybe it's because mm-hmm. we want to slightly push toward an option, obviously. Um. And so there's a lot of little stuff we added in the game. For example, uh, doing some cinematics um, one hour earlier, there's a, a close-up uh, close-up shot on uh, on, uh, on the character, and little stuff like that. And we found that with some light touch of um, of cinematography, we could really change the balance of uh, what the player um, will choose uh, like two hours two hours later. Wow, that's yeah. I would not have thought of that, but I I'm pretty sure I could like think of those exact moments too that really solidified my choices and I, I won't I won't say them because I, I don't really don't want to spoil the game I I want people to go and play it and experience it them for the sel- themselves because it just it, you really get immersed in the story while you're playing it um, even when I was like doing the side stuff I just kept wanting to be like let me go back I want to do the main mission I'll just play again and do all the little side things um, Though I, I did do a lot of the side stuff because exploring the ocean in this game is a lot of fun and a rewarding experience. But yeah, that's what a fascinating thing that, hey, the power of playtesting, because like I said, to me, the choice would have been obvious, but I think it's because of those cinematic moments. And again, it's thinking it, the design of this game, I, I, I find so cool to talk about because narrative is is so you know hand in hand with it like i think of play testing as like oh this person's struggling with this certain mechanic or how to progress at this certain moment or you know things questions like that but the game's you know final choice is is a bit more of a philosophical one but still looking at that from a play testing perspective of how do we more balance this out for people to you know 
more equally choose which fork in the road they want to take and playing and, and, you know, you know, I don't want to say manipulating is not the right word, but showing different sides of the story and presenting it in different ways to evoke a different emotional reaction. Uh, that was, that's a really cool anecdote. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And something that's difficult, um, regarding playtesting for this kind of games that when you're playtesting a game, this game is the game is not finished. Um, sometimes the lightning is not final, or sometimes there's just no lighting at, at all. Uh, sometimes there's a lot of bugs in the animation and everything. And so maybe the player will react uh, like negatively to something and not understand something. And it's not because it doesn't work, it's because it's not done yet. And um, you really have to have uh, all the layers to, um, to see if the player um, gets it or not. And so it's a lot of um, trying to understand if the feedback is um, is we should change it or maybe we should just um, slightly add that or change uh, this little stuff. And you know, understanding um, what what the problem really is is a is a key element of uh, of playtesting. Uh. Yeah, we we have some familiarity with that when we do. Sometimes we'll do like mock reviews for games for our clients where we have someone. Uh, the name's obvious to some, but like. They basically give us a fake review of the game and what we would expect a review when it comes out to look like. Um, but yeah, there there are a lot of times where we have to sit there and be like, okay, do we give them direction of like, hey, focus on this part because this part is not finished and we know like right now it's it's going to be buggy or like it, it's not working, but it's because it's not it's not done. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that we sometimes have to navigate as PR people too is filtering that feedback into what what's going to be the most helpful um there's there's one other other thing i want to talk about about this game that we haven't touched on yet and that is the like beautiful soundtrack by nicholas uh brayden Braden. i not sure how to pronounce his last name Braden. So was, yeah so it's b-r-e-d-i-n it there's, I'm like, I'm not sure. There's many different ways you could pronounce that, but he does a really fantastic job of creating this like sense of wonder in the ocean while also really plucking at the emotional chords. And a lot of that has to do with when his music comes in, in the game, there are some key moments where music plays this really pivotal role. Um, did you, how did music play into developing the game? Did you know early on, like when you wanted the the, that those musical notes to come in did that come at the end how did that process work um well first of all nicola is a is a co-founder of parallel studio so really is there is he, there from the start and um, oh. since the beginning he was there uh, when we talked about you know the early concept and everything and he could already uh, propose some stuff with the music and uh, and give us some ideas and then after that it's um it's um, how we manage the rhythm in the game. You know, some um, some moments when you want um, everything to be quiet, and um, maybe you don't want music at all, or maybe you want a light music, but something that will uh, be just atmospheric, and maybe some moments that will be uh, you know, the the end of a chapter or something like that. So you want some um, some flamboyant music, or mm-hmm. something like that. And what Nicola did is that he really composed with um, images in front of him. So the music is made for the image and for um, for what happens at the screen. Um, so that's that's how we built it, and we had to think um, about it um, during writing dialogues and everything. We want you know to have um, these little breaks or these uh, these pauses between dialogues um, for the music to express itself. Um, so yeah, it's a very important part um, of the process, especially for um, for a game which is um, very atmospheric and moody. Um, music does a lot of jobs and without the music it's not the same game yeah and, and there are some moments where like there there's the atmospheric pieces the really emotional ones and then there's there's um some rock music that like happens even like there's there's the uh alarm clock <laughs> that stan hates that always made me laugh that him grumbling about the the radio music playing but there's also moments where like you're just in moon exploring and like this rock music starts coming in and i i just remember being so taken aback because it's not the kind of music that you would expect to hear when you're under the ocean 
but it it works and i don't know why it works i don't know musical theory um but it that that was a surprise to me while playing and i remember writing it down as like soon as some of those songs started playing um also question sam did you did you play the guitar in the game and did you get the high scores to unlock the trophies (laughs) i don't throw me under the bus like this. I, I'm bad. I'm like, I'm out of practice. It's been too long since I've like flexed my rhythm game muscles. Um, so no, I did not. <laughs> I was a collectible boy though. I was following the octopus, octopi. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, I just, what about that, you? Did you, fun. did you master it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I spent way too much time playing the guitar in that game, which for people who are listening, Stan has a, in his bedroom, there's a, there's a guitar that you can find, unlock, and then you can play and you get to find these, the musical tapes from your exploration, which unlocks more songs to play. Um, I look again, wasn't expecting a rhythm game rhythm music game to be thrown in here, but I really enjoyed it. There's also a um, boxing. There's a, what is, what is a punching, punching bag that you get as well. Um, that one I did not get the high score to unlock the trophy for because for some reason that one I was having a hard time and I think it's because of the lack of music. I think I'm I think I need that music to to count beats and everything, but no, those were fun. Tomas, I'm curious, um, kind of in closing, looking at the game, you talked about trying to create this um, oh, I forget what the exact word you used was, but we were talking about the difficulty of the game and, and making it more of a welcoming presence or, or, or one that was inviting, less so scary and, you know, turning off players. I've seen it in, in launch um, be received by many like cozy streamers, cozy YouTubers. Was that did, was that something you expected when you initially started development of this game? Or was that, um, you know, seeing it kind of adopted by that subsect of the gaming community surprise you at all um no that, that's, that's what we were um, aiming for um we knew we wanted a game um that that felt good <laughs> for, like um, <laughs> you you want to be in this world um and so yes we we played on this vibe and that's also why we have um this uh, this guitar mini game or this uh, punching bag mini game um, that you can find in your in your life module it's um to create a, um, a cocoon you know, um, a place where you are at home and safe. And uh, we have this contrast when uh, you're at home uh, under the sea uh, with, uh, you know, um, warm lights and everything. And then you go outside under the sea and it's beautiful, it's huge, it's, um, it looks empty and it's all blue. And we play with a lot with those contrasts to, um, yeah, to, to, to create this, uh, this kind of atmosphere. I like it. Stan has a better bedroom than I did. He's got this like <laughs> really interesting like bed and alcove and there's TV and a window. He's got a book nook. Um, these are fake books behind me. Um, but yeah, he's got a plant, a computer, the guitar. I I really enjoyed the the life module space and even like the kitchen, just like making coffee and watching TV. And even though the TV was like, really depressing news <laughs> for the most part. But yeah, you, for those who are wa- watching the podcast, you can get a glimpse of what Stan's life looks like in the life module, but it, it was a vibe and fits with that, that retro futuristic um, vibe that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, which actually thinking of why, why the retro futuristic, um, how, where did you guys, how did you get to that like art style and vibe of the game? Um, there's multiple reasons. Uh, the first one is that um, having the game um, not set in, um, in uh, our times uh, allows us to have um, a political message that was um, less um, or more subtle in a way. Um, we don't point fingers to anything in particular. Right? Um, so it gives us um, a freedom to say um, what we want. Um, the fact to have it um, retrofuturistic allows us also to have some technological improvements that makes um, swimming uh, more easy. Um, you can go faster, you can um, go from swimming to walking quite easily because your, your, um, I'm not sure, your palms you know, they deploy themselves. Uh, you have an high-tech uh, submarine, uh, so 
that's um, that's the futuristic uh, part of the of the retro stuff. Uh, the game takes place in the seventies. For us, it's also a very important period. Um, I told earlier about uh, Jacques Cousteau documentaries, but it takes place during this period um, also, so that was uh, an homage. But it's also a very important period for um, ecology and um, the ecology discourse. Um, it's at that time, you know, that the big uh, petrol companies uh, started to um, really think about ecology and think about uh, their impact and maybe found some uh, some uh, some scientists to uh, to talk about ecology also. So um, yeah, it's it's an important period for what we want to say. Um, the fact that it takes place in um, in, um, in a version of the past also gives it um, a melancholic vibe, you know. Um, and so it goes well with the personal and grief story of Stan. So yes, it's, there's a lot of different reasons, and um, you know, it, it's a, for us it was a solution that solved like a lot of problems. I like that. Yeah, I. The nostalgia or the melancholy, like that feeling, I even from someone who like I didn't live in the seventies, but I I still felt that of like I, I think when Stan has like the the Polaroids and the kind of computer and like the communication where like the communication doesn't always work based on like the antennas and yes he's underwater and I think one could expect that anyways, but um, it, it added uh, another element to the game that. Thank you for sharing that, that I, I didn't really realize at first while playing as someone who's not a game designer and rightfully mm-hmm. so. Um, Sam, anyth- anything else that you want to ask? I, I'm going through my mental checklist. I feel like we've touched on a lot of parts about the game. We covered a lot. The biggest question I wanted to answer going in was like, are any of these these movies that I love that I got vibes from while playing? Uh, it was it was um, it was cool to hear that they were indeed uh you know part of the the influence in there. Was there any you know we the, the concept art I'm sure of this game? Like you said, it was a guiding light for you know level design, world design. I love the retro futuristic aesthetic. Were there any parts of the concepting or you know concept art? stylization that you weren't able to get into the game that you you tried and just couldn't make work oh yes there's one i have in mind um we had some concepts for um, a huge jellyfish like a very huge one (laughs) and we wanted to have a a whole scene where stan uh, swims around it and it um we never really had the the time or the justifications to uh, to bring it into the story uh, but it was like really cool uh, visually. Uh, so th- I think that's the one stuff um, that maybe uh, that didn't make it to the game. Yeah, that would, that that sounds cool. But I understand not uh, being able to make it work. There are some other very cool moments where there are giant beans <laughs> around Stan. That yeah, were, those were just there are cool visuals to have and. I don't want to spoil anything, so I won't. I won't say what they were, but there's a few of them that come to mind. But yeah, the jellyfish would have been a cool one. <laughs> uh, Tomas, is there is there anything else you want to talk about about the development of the game? Anything we haven't touched on that you would like to? Um, I'm not sure. I think we talked about a lot of it. Um, I don't know if you have anything. <laughs> no, it's to okay. Add on. No, I we really we did touch on a lot. Um, I do have like a final kind of question that we not about under the waves, but about you and like your future. What uh, what would be the game like? What is your dream game to design if you had the option? That's maybe that's a, a really tricky, a uh, tricky question. <laughs> um, I think I've always been lucky to work on games. I love designing. Um, I love I love working on poetic and atmospheric games. Um, and trying to propose you know new ideas and new ways of um, of doing something. So I think uh, I'd be happy just to do uh, to, to keep doing that. Um, since the launch the launch of Under the Waves, um, I've played a lot of Stardew Valley, for example, and something some games like that uh, that have such a cozy vibe and some um, sort of a feeling of um, of. of um, it's a cocoon games. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they are great to work on because uh, it's such a good vibe uh, doing them, doing them, and playing them. Yeah, 
Well, you're obviously very good at it. I really enjoyed Under the Waves. Um, I yeah, we will definitely be keeping an eye on what Parallel Studio does and what you work on. Um, I think I think that's it for everything that I have, Sam. Any any final? Just to say thank you, I loved Under the Waves as well. It did make me cry. Um, I would you know recommend people check it out. Um, and it's it. I mean, we've talked about it. it, No question here, but just finding that balance between creating something cozy yet still sad or or melancholic is hard. Um, I feel like most people associate cozy with just um, happy-go-lucky or bright and friendly. And while there are very, like uh, Caitlin said, just wondrous moments in this game, there's also um, moments that hit me really hard. And so uh, it was, thank you for breaking down the design of how you made those moments happen. Yeah, so thank you for, for the invitation. And uh, thank you for yeah. all the questions. Uh, it's was really interesting uh, exploring uh, all the design again. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, it was informative for us and enjoyable. So thank you so much. I really enjoyed Under the Waves. I will I'll be playing it again. Um, I guess closing closing question, Thomas. Uh, where can people find you on the internet if you want them to? Um, I'm not. I'm on I'm on Twitter, uh, but I okay. don't post a lot. I think on Twitter. And that's already, um, I haven't got a, a huge internet presence. No worries. Uh, well, check out t- Thomas on Twitter if you'd like, or definitely keep an eye on what Parallel Studio does in the future. You can find me at Caitlin Redwing on all socials. Um, you can find the podcast at Realtime Strats on Twitter slash X. You can find it at Realtime Strategy on YouTube for those who want to watch the video portion of this podcast. A reminder that our podcast is now weekly on Wednesdays, not Fridays anymore. Um, <laughs> so you will be getting a lot more of Sam and myself for your weekly podcast fix. Um, Sam, where can people find you? You can find me everywhere at Sam Scott Mosier. Sounds good. All right. Well, until next time, everybody, thank you for listening or watching. Uh, definitely give us your your thoughts, leave some comments, like, subscribe, the whole gamut. Uh, you can also email us questions or thoughts at podcast at triplepointpr.com. Once again, thanks for listening. Till next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.